So, I need a Bible. So we're going to be working from the uh, the Pew Bible, uh, so we all have the same page numbers. And um, we have lots of questions today. Good, good, all right. So, all right. All right. So not just from my family, and but... But, um, all right, so here's one. It says, all right, is speaking in tongues a, pr- um, a prayer? Who does this benefit? Okay, so what's going on with speaking in tongues? So um, uh, there are two places I'd like you to turn at the same time. So, <laughs> so, uh, so um, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer first. Um, Heavenly Father, um, uh, as we hear your word read and as we hear it interpreted, Lord, um, uh, let your Holy Spirit speak to us so that we can understand um, more about your love for us that you have expressed to us in Christ and your wishes for our um, well-being and our eternal security. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so um, the the first place when we hear talking about uh, when we hear people talking about speaking in tongues, I think a lot of us uh, we we um, think about the story of Pentecost, the story where the apostles were gathered and uh, there was the sound of the the rushing wind. So if you uh, if you turn to the back section of the Bible, number page one nineteen, it will tell us about that. So this is in Acts two. So. Um, Acts 2, it says, um, there was this, uh, uh, verse 2, suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and they, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, divided tongues as a fire appeared on each of them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. So that would be speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages. Um, and it goes on to tell us that, uh, what those languages were. That they were um, the languages in verse nine of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and so forth. So it lists all these different places that people understand these tongues because they are travelers who are from those places, and so they understand it. And they're saying, um, "You should be speaking Hebrew with a Galilean accent, uh, or Aramaic with a with a Galilean accent." But instead, you're speaking my 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 ba- the, the language I grew up, my mother tongue, um, and you're speaking it perfectly well. So they say they say um, in our own languages we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. So this is one picture of of what it looks like when people speak in tongues. So hold on to that, and then turn a few pages over in First uh, Corinthians, page one seventy. Uh, 175. So, 1 Corinthians 14. So, Paul is going to talk some more about tongues. So, um, uh, and, and we're going to get a different picture of what the tongues are like there. So, he says, um, in verse 14, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For those who speak in a tongue, in a tongue, do not speak to other people, but to God, for nobody understands them, since they are speaking mysteries in the Spirit. 
Now that doesn't sound like Pentecost. The whole point of Pentecost is is the tongues gave people the ability to be understood by strangers from faraway places. But here Paul is saying in the worship that the Corinthians were were engaged in, people were speaking these heavenly tongues, the the um, tongues. Um, if you've been at a wedding and it, and and you've heard the the preacher talk about um, uh, if I have. Um, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, that's right up at the top of the page, uh, chapter 13. He's talking about these, these tongues of angels. They're, they're, they're not the tongues of the Parthians and the Medes and the Cappadocians. These are the tongues that angels speak. So he says, that's the reason nobody understands them. Um, uh, he says, he says, um, that, that they are, they're, they're wonderful things. He says in verse five, now I would like all of you to speak in tongues. So that's a, that would be a good thing. But then he says, even more to prophesy. One who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets for the, so that the church may be built up. So he goes on to talk about some of the difficulties, uh, that are, that are involved in speaking in tongues. But, um, but there are two different, uh, two different ways of understanding tongues, uh, in the New Testament. One of them is the, is the language of, of human speech and, and God gives that gift sometimes because he wants people to understand a, a message uh, that that those people would not have understood otherwise that they're they're able to hear in their own language what what it is that God has been doing so we see that in the Pentecost story but then we see in the worship of the church in Corinth this different kind of tongues the tongues of angels call, Paul calls them so um so that's that's the difference between them and then the question is who does it benefit oh what a great lead in so um so at the bottom of page 175 column 1 it says now brothers and sisters if i come to you speaking in tongues how will i benefit you unless i speak to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching he says uh he talks about a flute and a bugle he says and then in verse 9 so with yourself if in a tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible how will anyone know what is being said for you will be speaking into the air um, he says uh, uh, in verse 11, uh, if I do not know the meaning of a sound, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So he says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in them for building up the church. He says it's a perfectly good gift. He says, I wish all of you would speak in tongues. But he says, even more, I wish you would prophesy. I wish you would speak in a way that people could understand. So who benefits? The answer is you benefit. You know, and I, I don't know what that's like. I, I have not um, spoken in tongues myself. Um, but I can imagine that, that Paul, Paul talks very highly of it, that it must be a, a great experience to communicate uh, in, the, in the tongues of angels. But um, it's not the best gift. He talks about uh, he talks about the the, the prophesying as as a better thing. In verse eighteen, he says, "I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than ten thousand words in a tongue." So uh, it apparently does benefit people to speak in tongues, but he says the good thing about prophesying is you can benefit other people as well. So um, so it does benefit you. Uh, but it may be only you who's benefiting if you're speaking in tongues. So, um, uh, I will go on and just because, uh, because I know this, this chapter better than some because this is our Presbyterian secret, secret, uh, chapter. So if you, 
if you're a Methodist, you can roll your eyes now because, um, so if you, if you turn the page to 176, um, you'll see there's a, they, they put a helpful little heading there. It says orderly worship. And th- this is where Presbyterians say, you bet. We're all about the, the orderly worship. So he says, he, he says, um, he says that you should, um, uh, uh, if anyone speaks a tongue, let there only be two or three at most. And then he wraps it all up down at the bottom of that, uh, of that chapter. He says, um, so, um, my friends, be eager to prophesy, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently in, or, in order. And, and that's our unofficial motto um, of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, our, our official motto is the, uh, the Reformed Church always being reformed according to the Word of God. But our unofficial motto is if it starts getting unhinged here, if people start you know, raising their hands or standing up when they pray or, or kneeling down when they pray, if they start acting like everybody else is not acting, then, then we start to get a little bit nervous and say, I don't know, I'm not feeling very comfortable about this. And so we take, we take something Paul was talking about where people are, there seems to be this, 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 um, very, uh, exuberant worship going on in Paul's, uh, context. And we say, we just always need to turn the, the, the knob down to like one. You know, so, so, uh, um, I think, I think we're, we're, we're making too much out of what Paul has to say there. So, um, I think it's a, I think Paul would be okay if the knobs turned up to like five or six. So, all right. Uh, next question. Uh, what does the Bible tell us about telling truth or lies? Telling truth or lies? All right. What does the Bible say about that? All right. Um, let's begin by turning to, um, Exodus chapter 20. So that's page 66, right up close to the front. And I'm trying to think where the other passage I want to look at is. One of you can help me when we get there. So, um, uh, in Exodus 20, these are the Ten Commandments. And um, we read uh, in verse 16, ch- chapter 20, verse 16, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So, that is one type of telling the truth or telling a lie. And uh, it goes on at great length in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and then really throughout the prophets, it talks about the importance of... Telling the truth when, when in, in the particular circumstance, when somebody else's welfare is at stake. So if, if there's a court case that, that it's bad enough to lie, but it's particularly bad to lie if somebody else could be harmed by it. So, so the, the, this one, um, short commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor is, is explored at great length throughout the, 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 the Jewish law and the prophets, what does that actually mean? And it means things like, um, uh, you know, this person's on trial, and you 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 could you could send them to the chair, or you could get them off, depending on what you say. You should tell the truth, regardless which you want. But it also means things that that are more difficult. It says um, that the weak should tell the truth to the powerful, because they may be tempted to say, you know. This guy's not going to like me if I tell him the truth, you know. So, does this does this crown make me look dumb? And you know, you know, if you're if you're the the peasant and the king just asks you that question, you may say, "No, Your Majesty, it makes you look wonderful." But but there's this this idea that you should not bear false witness um, to 
to your neighbor as well. So this is explored at great length. But I want to I want to move to the New Testament, um, and and go more specifically some some teaching that Jesus gives us. Um, so in chapter five, I think it's five. So page five of the New Testament section. So toward the back. Um, let me think. Where does he say this? Okay. So uh, uh, chapter five, verse thirty-three. Matthew. In Matthew. Sorry. Oh, page five. Page five. It's the only. It's the only uh, biography of Jesus that's on page five. So, all right. Page five. Matthew 5, verse 33. And there's a little helpful heading there. Um, you're all supposed to shout amen when you find that page. Amen. amen. Okay, okay. All right, so um, uh, now you're ready to go to prison. All right. So, uh, so verse 33. Again, you've heard it said uh, to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you made to the Lord. So Jesus quotes another example of the, the, the teaching throughout the, the Jewish law that, that there are specific things, you know, vows are an example of something where you have to tell the truth. Not just in, in court cases, but when you made a vow. So he says, you've heard that. He says, but I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. He says, he says that we have a tendency to tell whoppers. And so then we say, but if I'm lying, may God strike me dead. That, that once, once we've, once we've ruined our reputation and nobody trusts us, then we start dragging God into it. Right? And so, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, I'll pay you on Tuesday for a hamburger today or whatever it is. Um, uh, that we start saying that sort of thing. And, and after a while, after people have, have, uh, and not been paid back often enough, they start they, they refuse to extend credit, and so we start saying, "Oh, but I swear to God, I will pay you back." And then so we're dragging God into our business, and so He says, "Don't do that." He says, "He says, just be truthful. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one." He says that that tendency to start bringing God into this, counting on God to lie for you, that God will kind of you know just. Just say, sure, he's good for it. And he says, don't, don't, don't bring God into it because th- that's a, that's, that's coming from an evil place. So, so, um, so I think that's, unless there was more, I'm going to say that that's as good as I can do with, um, with lying. How are we doing? Oh, we've got all kinds of time. All right. So the next question. All right. Matthew 12. Um, verse 41 through 44. So that'll be a few pages over. Matthew 12, verses 41 through 44. Matthew 12, 41 through 44. The lady with two coins. Okay. All right. Um, okay. All right. Well, okay. All right. All right. Well, let me do, let me do these two things. So, um, uh, what can I do with this? Um, the sign of Jonah. All right. That is not a passage that I feel equipped to, to, uh, interpret on short notice. 
So instead, I will turn to Luke 18 or 19. So let's go to Luke 18, which is on page 81. Is this it? No, no. I'll find it. Mark? Mark 12? Okay. I'm trying to find the story about the widow with her two coins. I thought that was in Luke, but you're seeing, you're seeing the, uh, the pastor here. All right. Um, his vast knowledge. Okay, here we go. It is in Luke, but it's in a different chapter of Luke. All right, so page 50, page 50 of Mark, and it is chapter 12. Mark 12. Mark 12, 41 through 44. So, um, so, amen. amen. Okay, page 50. Okay, all right. So now we know where we're working. So, all right, the widow's offering. And, and as it says, you see the little heading, they tell you that it's also in Luke, but just not the chapter I was looking at. So, um, so starting in verse 41, he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So um, before I read the question, um, that should bother us. That should bother us because... I don't think any of us put everything we have to live on in the, in the offering today. So, um, it should, it, you know, I think this is an example of where Jesus is sometimes all sweetness and light and he's got the little lamb on his shoulders and, and the kid in his lap. But sometimes he's saying things that go, ooh, I'm not, I'm not sure if I like that. So, um, so, um, this separate question, separate question, I'll, 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 now that that's, that's uh, sat with you for 30 seconds. Uh, a separate thing is, is it a competition? So is the goal to give more than anybody else? So think about that too. But Jesus has told you very clearly um, how you give more than anybody else. All right, so the question is, who is invested more, the one-time visitor or the every Sunday attender? Wow, who's invested more? So I assume invested more of their time. Um, invested more of their time in coming. Um, it doesn't. This doesn't ask any question about how much money they've given. So I'm going to say um, I'm going to interpret this as who's given more of their lives, who's given more of their time. Yes, Jim. Yeah, who's taking the bigger risk? Who's, who's taking the bigger risk? Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, so um, that's a, that's a that's a interesting question. So you know I. I, I don't have as good a record of attendance as Patrick or Mike, but um, but I'm right up there. So because I get paid to come, um, and uh, and so I think I think those of us who are who are regular church people who who come and we we have a role in the church that that we like to think that God is looking at our our contributions to the work of the people, um, and and He's kind of you know giving us a little gold star. Um, and and uh, this this passage, I think, maybe has some bearing on that. I hadn't thought of, I hadn't put the two together. But if you think about somebody who, um, you know, at Christmas, 
some of you brought brought guests at Christmas, and I don't know whether that was easy for for you to ask them. I don't know if it was easy for them to come, but um, but I know in some in some cases the person who comes, um, you've been you've been praying for them to come to church for a long time, and uh, they agreed this one time, and so um, so yeah, I think that in that case the the effort that you went to to um, to encourage them to come to church and the effort they went to the 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 risk that they took you know i mean you know what if the roof falls in when i enter the door you know i think i think a lot of people have have baggage about god because they've been in churches that hurt them and so the investment the the risk that they're taking may be maybe greater so um so yeah um I'll go back to the the other the other point. I'm not sure if it's a if it's a um, it's a competition, uh, but yeah, I think that's something that's a that's a good perspective. Maybe we should um, think more about what it costs somebody else to to come to church or to get a friend to come to church. So it may have been a, a great great uh, great sacrifice. All right, um, I'm going to do one more. Um, so uh oh my goodness. Uh be a long one. Okay. There's one there's one here on yeast, and so I said, well let me flip to the next one. <laughs> okay. Um so one is from deep in the law in Exodus thirteen and twelve. Um and the other one talks about um people who have um been traumatized by, by their church experience. Um so uh this is a light topic there. All right. Um that's probably got more currency than yeast. Briefly I'll tell you the deal with yeast is um is the idea in, in the throughout the Old Testament, um there are these weird little laws. Uh don't mix don't mix um you know what is it, linen with wool. Um you, you know, all these things and you say, what is the point of that? What is the deal with having, you know, yeast? Um and oftentimes, this is not always the case, but oftentimes, and it may be if you're reading the Bible and you're puzzling over something like that, in general, there's this, there's this uh, way of thinking, which is that the people of God are to be separated, that they are not to be like the other people around them. And so there are these arbitrary rules, and they're, they're completely arbitrary. It's not that there's anything wrong with yeast. It talks about you, make, you, make, you put yeast in your bread all the time, except when you don't. And the reason you don't is because you want to be different. And the same thing with the the rest of the dietary codes, um, uh, the 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 business with the mixing your two different types of fabric, you know, all those things. Um, that the idea is that that's to be distinct from the uh, people around you. So, um, as, without going into that that passage, that would be my first guess about Exodus thirteen and twelve. But I want to talk about this people. All right, let me just read the question. Given the multitude of people who, with, who have traumatic memories of being at churches, why should these people bother to force themselves to go to church as opposed to going alone or in a small group not associated with the church? Okay, so why, why institutional church? Given, given that institutional churches um, are capable of making bigger mistakes than um, small churches, uh, the, the bigger the church, the more, the more damage you can do. Um, you know, as a pastor, this is something I think about a lot, is that I have not been put in charge of a, um, some megachurch with, with 10,000 people coming on a weekend. What a blessing that is. 
You know, if if um, if I fall from grace, if I do something terrible, there's enough of you here. I could actually go apologize to you. I could actually seek to make amends. And I just think, what what must it be like for people who are who are the leaders of, of churches with ten thousand people? So um, so I think there's a lot to be said for being in a small church um, uh, when you realize the 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 dangers that that come with them. Um, uh, the church I grew up in uh, was uh, was a Catholic church, and the the associate pastor at that church died in the New Mexico State Penitentiary in two thousand five, I think. He'd been convicted of a number of cases of child abuse, um, sexual sexual abuse, and um, he was serving a 258-year sentence. So um, what would I say to somebody who has been traumatized in the church, whether it's just by the, the, the church acting like jerks or whether it's the church actually doing something terrible? Um, uh, I, would, I would tell them that, that, uh, that God took the risk of using... People who are not fully sanctified to to reach them, and um, and when they get to heaven, they can ask God whether that was a good plan or not. Um, but I think we're we're all we're, we can all imagine cases where we would say that would be a terrible thing. Um, why would God Why would God allow that? And it gets into the general problem of why does evil happen. Um, but in the in the church, if it's something if it's something if if it's something minor, you come to church and somebody says you, you bring you bring somebody like I was talking before you bring somebody and they never come to church but they agreed to come this time and they come to church and they sit down in somebody's pew and and somebody comes in and says you're in my spot, okay. <laughs> now that's not traumatizing, but it may be. It may be exactly the person, you know, what the person, it's like, I knew I wasn't welcome here. And then they, all the, the tapes in their head start playing, and they decide that God hates them because of this one remark about, you're in my spot. So, so what I would say about that case is that, um, is that God has chosen to work with, with, uh, fallible humans, um, because there's no alternative. I don't know any in, infallible people. I don't know anybody else that I would trust with the church. And, including myself, um, but God chose to use us anyway. And so, um, if uh, if you're in a big church, it just means that there's more likelihood of of you bumping into them. Um, but then again, you may not be having deep deep uh, encounters, so they don't have that opportunity to really get under your skin. Um, in a small church, uh, the the if the proportion of jerks is the same across the whole population, right? Then in a small church, you have a lower likelihood of bumping into a jerk, but um, but they're going to be closer. You're going to you're going to have a, a deeper relationship. You're probably going to know their name, and they're going to know yours, and so forth. So um, I don't think that you can really solve the problem by saying um, uh, I'm in a I'm in a I'm not going to a church experience, so um, I don't have to deal with those bad people because. Because you don't really have a choice. If you're going to deal with people, you're going to deal with people who make mistakes, people who do things wrong, people who have a favorite spot to sit. And um, and if it's something that is just a terrible trauma, um, that's that's just a hard question. I would I would say the same thing. Why does God let people die of terrible diseases? Why why is there poverty and hunger in the world? Um, you know why hasn't God intervened in a more 
direct, miraculous way to deal with all the problems in the world. These are, these are questions that I can only refer to God's wisdom and His mercy and say, for, for some reason that makes sense to God, um, God allows those things to happen anyway. So, I hope I've, I hope I've, um, helped with that question. It seems like a pretty hard one. Um, so. All right. So um, let's uh, let's close now in prayer. Um, Lord, we we are forgiven in Christ. It is it is the work of an instant, but we spend our whole lives um, growing uh, into the image and likeness of Christ to become more who you made us to be. And Lord. Um, People are weak. People make mistakes. People make intentional um, decisions. And um, others suffer because of that in the church and outside. So, Lord, I pray that you would um, you would give each of us strength and help us to, uh, to overcome the temptations, to go back to our old ways, to settle for less. Um, and... Lord, for for people who feel this more deeply than we do, Lord, uh, once in a while, give us give us a sense of what other Christians around the world and down through the centuries have have really been dealing with, so that we can pray with them. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. We pray it in Your holy name, Amen. All right.